0: I sometimes feel a little bad that I did not try and work it out so my son would have a sibling. We, we start a little late with that, so he's, he's an only child, he doesn't have an older sibling to pester him and lie to him, and he doesn't have a younger sibling that he could pester and lie to. And you might hear me say that and think, wow, you must have a really bad relationship with, with your older sister, and the answer is no, I don't, I love my sister, she's a very good friend of mine, but Whew! She pestered me and lied to me for a long time. I remember the day she told me, and I, I may have told you about this years ago, that if I broke the glass on the TV, the Dukes of Hazard* would come out, and I could go for a ride in the General Lee with the jump and everything. And I tried. I tried as hard as I could. My mom walked into the room, and I was just belting hard objects at the TV. She said, what are you doing? And I remember one time, I mean, even in church, nothing was sacred. We were sitting in church... And in our church, Essexville Baptist Community Church, another ABC church, uh, the choir would come in from the sides. It was really cool. It would process in all solemn every week in their robes because they'd been practicing in the basement. And the way that the, the sanctuary up here was set up, there was these kind of short walls, these nubby walls, that went out just a little ways, and there were a few feet behind them, and they would walk in through the gap. But the way that the, the paneling perfectly matched from where we sat, it looked like they were sort of teleporting in, just appearing out of nowhere. And I, I just leaned over to my sister one day, and I said, how do they do that? And she leaned over and said, magic. And I was like three or four. And I, for a minute, I thought, no, she's lying to you. And then I thought, well, we are at church. We read all these stories about God being powerful. I said, do you mean a miracle? And she said, Yeah and i bought it for a while and then as as time went on i started to think no it's probably not a real miracle or it's not real magic what can you believe i'm your pastor it was uh it was actually just some kind of david copperfield style you know apparatus that made it look like they were appearing some kind of hidden secret magical door that would flip open or flip back like when somebody goes into a chest and disappears Until one day when I was maybe five or six, I walked up onto the chancel and looked and was like, oh, it's just a normal opening. There's nothing magical or even magic tricky about it. So imagine my excitement 20 some years later when I came here as the pastor and I was poking around looking at the sanctuary. And I discovered that we actually have Princess Bride style hidden doors. In the walls. I felt like I was about 10 years old. There's another one over here. Now, Sean, now that you know about these, I don't want to see you playing and running around back here a whole lot. But (laughs) secret hidden doors that look like they're part of the wall. And you know, when I think about such things, it makes me think of God's providence throughout all of Scripture and in all of our lives. When we find that God opens hidden doors that we didn't even know were there at all. They were right next to us. But we didn't know they were there. He did. We didn't. We thought them maybe were an obstacle or part of a wall pinning us in, holding us back, until, and when all seems lost and hopeless, God says, oh, yeah, just push right there, and it'll swing open. I've made for you a way out. I've made for you a way in this moment to glorify me, to find a way to escape from this temptation, to endure this trial now, we've talked again and again about how in the book of Esther, providence will be a theme, and it really begins to, to show in earnest, I think, in this text. And we've also talked about how there are these things called divine passives. And I don't want you to tune me out real brief. A passive is when I say, instead of, I threw the ball, the ball was thrown Uh, It's a a passive tense, but the divine passive is when the author of Scripture doesn't use the the phrase God did this They just say this was done and it leaves you wondering was this done simply by the person who did it? Or did God have a hand in it? It was a way sometimes for the authors of Scripture to talk about God without continually using his sacred name Which was reserved uh, and not used uh, any more than was necessary or perhaps it was used coyly when it looks like something is being done for evil intent, and maybe it even is by the humans doing it, but God is also at work. We see several of these divine passives here in our passage today. Even just in verse 8, there are a number of them. We read that the exiles were taken from Israel into Babylon. Not that Nebuchadnezzar took them, but they were taken. We read that Esther was taken into the citadel. We read that Esther was entrusted to Haggai. Why talk like this? This is like you get a C minus on your paper if you write like this in school. The emphasis is that there is more than one agent at work here. Yes, one of them is kind of a uh, unhinged, super selfish king who's looking to gratify the flesh and build up his own glory. But in the midst, as Esther is taken into the citadel, God also is working And he works in this book through all sorts of things. He works through Esther's closest friends and kinsmen, through a king and his attendants, through decisions of people in leadership, people in authority that may seem foolish, that may be foolish, but God is working in them, even through the sworn enemy of God's people. God is at work. He's furthering his plans. He furthers them through noble and selfless pursuits of righteous people. He furthers them behind and beneath, wicked and self-seeking power plays, and even in the boring pedantic, read me the records of it to help me sleep, proceedings of government meetings and court life. We'll see it from the beginning of this book to the end. Now, so far in the book of Esther, we've met two main characters, some underlings, you know, Memucan and, and some of these toadies and things, but mainly Queen Vashti and King Ahasuerus. And these are perhaps the most powerful people in the world at the moment. If anyone's free in all of Persia, Persia was a fairly free relative to everyone else society, but you certainly still weren't free like we know it. But you'd think King Ahasuerus can do whatever he wants other than anything that might undo one of the laws of the Medes and the Persians, he's the guy who has the run of the place. He's the guy who can say, all right, everybody, six-month party on me, using tax dollars, everybody come and enjoy. He is free. And yet, as God's providence continues to make itself known, we see maybe he's not as free as he thinks he is. I've heard this described as kind of a cruise ship situation. I don't know if you've ever been on a cruise. I have not. One one of these days we're going to do one of these Viking river cruises you see on PBS. But I know that on, on cruise ships there are lots of activities because I've seen the commercials. I know that the way they try to sell you on it is that you are so free. Not only are you free of the constraints of land, now you're out to sea in this romantic way, but there's so many things to do. At any given time, you could go partake of one of the many buffets or bars. You could go and take in a show. You could go swim in one of the pools. You could, you could go play pool. You could go dancing. You know, you, there are skydiver simulators and, and water slides and some of these things. They're enormous, and you can do whatever you want. But once you get on board, you are kind of captive to the course that has been set. You can do whatever you want, but it's now been determined where you are going to arrive. I think that's a good picture of God's providence. Many people thinking, oh, I am absolutely in control of my own fate. Look, I'm doing whatever I want all the time. I got it all worked out. 9 a.m., I go down here and have this buffet, then I go over here. But the cruise ship is headed where the cruise ship is headed, and there is nothing that you can do to alter a predetermined course if God has predetermined it, and he is at work. Very briefly, if you've not been with us, to bring you up to speed, we've seen that King Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, had a huge party, In the midst of this drunken party he says bring in my wife so we can all ogle her she says no thank you he gets really mad brings together his council of sages all of whom still are like tipsy and not in any kind of decision-making way and they say the best thing to do so that all of our wives from the top to the bottom throughout all of persia don't also get uppity like that is to depose queen vashti get her out of there And then we're gonna issue a decree that all women have to absolutely do what their men say and respect them and yada yada yada. That's what has happened up to this point. And then chapter two begins with Aher Hadavrim, which means literally after the things. After the things, here's what happens: it's after these things in the ESV, after these particular things, next would happen. But there are more things that have happened in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. In fact, in the text, if you look at verse 16, you can actually kind of do the math and figure out how much time passes between these two chapters because chapter, uh, verse 16, rather, happens in the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign, which means that between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, three years have passed. And during those three years, the king has been busy. If you know your history, you know this is about when Ahasuerus amassed the largest army ever assembled up to that point and made a run for Greece. Movies have been made out of it. Comic books have been made out of it. And, of course, part of the big party at the beginning may have been about trying to bring in a lot of military people from different provinces, different parts of his empire, get them all jazzed about this war, get them ready, get them psyched up. But despite this enormous army and this great purpose that he had, He lost. He was not able to do what he wanted to do in Greece. So now he comes back home, tail between his legs. He has been humiliated in his own home by his wife and then almost immediately humiliated on the battlefield. And he slinks back home to lick his wounds. And of course, what would you want to do? And I have a tough day and I get home. I just want to hug my wife. He's probably thinking the same thing. And then he remembers Vashti and what she did and what was decreed about her. You see, this is the really frustrating part here about this guy. He's no longer angry. He's no longer drunk. He's sobered up. He's simmered down. But the effects continue because it was a permanent thing he did. And the law of the Medes and the Persians forbids him from undoing it. He's longing for his wife, seemingly filled with some regret. He's broken and beaten down by life. If ever there was a time that this man might repent, it would be right now. Am I right? Ever there was a moment, you know, we're just hitting bottom, the aftermath of sin. This is where people often come to Jesus. Jesus, again, uh, talked to the kids a little about the prodigal son. In that picture, it's when he finds himself with the pigs eating pig food, hitting bottom, that he says, I think I'm going to go home and see if I can be reconciled to my father. A picture of sinners as well, turning back when they see where sin leads and, and throwing themselves at the mercy of a kind and prodigal God. This often happens a little less dramatically, but sometimes dramatically in a, in a jail cell or in the midst of a, a terrible hangover, contemplating or trying not to contemplate the moral shipwreck one has made of their life, of their relationships, things, bridges burned in the heat of anger or something like that. And in the midst of lonely, depressing aftermaths of sin, people will often turn to God. However, a Ahasuerus, in the midst of his lonely and depressing aftermath just decides to keep following his own fleshly desires. His advisors are to blame, perhaps. Ultimately, he is, but he surrounds himself with the wrong people. They point him toward indulging his flesh, burying his regret under a blanket of just fleshly, worldly self-gratification. And it's, it's one of those like expensive weighted blankets that we were reading about a year or two ago because this guy's got a lot of regret and self-loathing. And so he's going to need a lot of carnal enjoyment in order to try and mute that voice in his head. And I think we see how little remorse he has, how he has completely gone the opposite direction from repentance in the pronouns. Just in the, at the very beginning, he remembers Vashti, that implies that he kind of forgot about her. He's like, oh, yeah, don't I have a wife? In addition to all these many women in my harem? And then he remembers what she did. She had done something wrong, certainly. That's it in his mind. And then he remembers what had been decided against her. That's a different kind of passive voice. That's like the politician passive voice, where instead of saying, I screwed up, they say, mistakes were made. Right, Nowhere does he even acknowledge that he had been in the wrong. And he's surrounded by people that are going to enable him in this. And so instead of repenting, he doubles down on the emptiness and begins planning, with the help of his friends, a state-funded string of one-night stands. This is a dumb move, but it's one that many of us have made. Not the state-funded string of one-night stands, <laughs> but the notion of saying to yourself, this thing, this sin that left me feeling empty and hopeless again and again and again, this time will leave me feeling satisfied and gratified. I I hate the way I feel after I gossip, after I do this or that. I'm just going to go back and do it though, because this time I think I've got it figured out. This time it'll scratch my itch and I'll be in control and it won't let me down this time. Well, this big, brilliant idea, of course, comes from the people around the king. We see in verses 2 and following, Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let's give them cosmetics. Let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. That's the plan. No work was done here. That is a first draft. Now, normally, queens were chosen from among the seven noble families of Persia. That's out the window here. This is a special situation. It's unorthodox, and it's something that should have required a little thought. Hold on, let's sleep on this. But that's not how Ahasuerus works. Again, we see that he has surrounded himself with the worst possible advisors. Last time, it was his council of sages, the wise men, who gave him horrible advice that he gobbled up. Now it's the young men. These are his bros, probably his drinking buddies. He didn't have to call them in. They were already with him at this point. He's quick to take their terrible, transparently flattering, sniveling advice as if it were earnest. Like They're all like a scumbag friend who tells their lovelorn buddy, you know what, you just need to get out there and spend the night with another woman and clear your head and forget about your heartbreak. There's always a character like that on a sitcom, have you noticed? Only in this case, this guy has the temporal power to make it many, many nights with many, many women. There's a tendency, I think, to try and scrub this guy's character, and I don't understand why. This is a a slimy, weird, awful thing that he is planning to do. There's a movie, a Christian movie, called One Night with the King... I don't know if any of you have seen it. It sounds like the kind of movie you, you wouldn't want to show up on your hotel bill. Like they'd be like, I see that you watch. But it really is a, a cheesy Christian movie. I mean, they did their best, I guess. And it's a touchy subject matter, but <laughs> they tried so hard to make Ahasuerus, because he's not the bad guy of the story, a real noble good guy. And so when it's Esther's turn to come into him, they spend the whole night reading to each other. And he says, you know, you're not like the other girls. You're, you're really smart and independent, and I like reading with you. Let's get married. And I don't get it. This is not a cute story. It's not a romantic story. You want a romantic story? Read Ruth. This is something else entirely. It's not a good situation she's in, and this is not a good man. If we miss that, we miss the depth of God's working here in his redeeming power. And so these men suggest what they think will be a pleasant diversion so that the king won't take his angst out on them because he's that kind of guy just like last time these sycophants are most concerned with self-preservation and they will throw anybody under the bus to keep that in play their earlier edict concerned all the wives in every province this one concerns all the beautiful young virgins in every province how thoughtlessly and how quickly They will upend and overturn countless lives and even the very personhood of so many people for a whim. This is exceedingly wicked. In fact, when I I read about this, it makes me think of Philippians 3, where Paul is describing the enemies of the cross. And he says, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Ahasuerus' ears were ringing in the grave when those words were penned. Think about, think about what he's come up with himself. This is his brilliance. The only ideas that originated with Ahasuerus himself so far have been let's party for six months to feed his glory, and let's parade my wife around for his gratification, and I guess also his glory. Godly counselors would rebuke him for this and say, Guy, grow up. You're supposed to be a leader, you're supposed to care for these people. You're supposed to protect them they would tell him to repent which means to reverse course and go in a completely different direction but these jokers affirm his carnal thoughts and, and impulses because it's best for them and easiest for them and then they use those things to easily manipulate their king who decides that since drowning his sorrows and self-loathing and months of drinking didn't work he will instead immerse himself in months of women Clearly, he doesn't remember that treating women like possessions and playthings contributed to his current misery and loneliness in the first place. And so he just rubber stamps, or more likely signet rings, this whole plan. It's carried out then with this sort of Eastern efficiency you'd expect for a major project in the Persian Empire. A commission is actually set up, this is, this is goofy, to undertake the chore of finding the prettiest women. It's almost, it's almost like the whole country is ground to a halt and become a sort of twisted reality show beauty pageant. They're then responsible for gathering them together, bringing them to Susa, and preparing them to meet the king. Then, a chapter and a half into the book, we finally meet our two main characters, our hero and heroine. Two diaspora Jews living their lives just outside the center of political power, the citadel of Susa. Although, if you're just outside, whatever is going on inside the king's inner circle, and especially in his harem, may as well be 5,000 miles away. That will become a frustration for Mordecai a little later in the passage. But Mordecai is one of these two main characters. His ancestry that we're given points back toward King Saul. He's a Benjamite. And we're given a few generations back to Kish, who's the one who is actually exiled. And Kish is the name of King Saul's father. King Saul, also a Benjamite. This is pointing us back toward King Saul. That's going to be super important in chapter 3. Maybe just jot a note. I will let you know. I'll remind you when we get up to that. But that will be important. Just bear in mind, this guy has a, a kind of kingly way about him. We, we often think of these people as being just dirt poor nobodies. That's not necessarily the case. Now, if you're wondering what is this exile that I keep talking about, a real easy way to be introduced to it is the first four verses of the book of Daniel. It says, "...in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand." with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to his land, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of their royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans." One of these very early waves of bringing in important people is where the family, the ancestors of Mordecai, are brought into Babylon. Then later, when Persia takes over, they kind of spread people around that empire. So he's he's probably of a royal line. He sits at the king's gate, we read, meaning he holds a governmental position. He's kind of a big deal, Mordecai. And he's, it seems, quite a nice guy. He has adopted his young orphan cousin by the name of Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. We'll talk about that a little later. We'll look at Isaiah fifty-five thirteen 13 and, and the significance of that. Her other name, her Persian name, the name by which she's called throughout the book of Esther, is Esther. It means star, but it also probably is a reference to Ishtar, who is a goddess of love and war. Now, if you look at Mordecai, his name is just very, very pagan. It comes from Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians. He almost certainly has a Hebrew name as well. Like, Hadassah is Esther's Hebrew name, but we never learn what it is. He's a very complex character. And in this book being written to the diaspora community, Mordecai seems at first to be an ideal Jew living under a pagan king, remaining very much loyal to his god to his people to the the land in which he dwells and the ruler there and it seems like he's loyal to them in the right order we might think of jeremiah 29 six and seven when god says this through the prophet while you're in exile take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We say, all right, good for you, Mordecai, you're doing just that. You're working for the welfare of Susa during exile. But if we keep reading, we get to the rather famous verse in its context, Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, this place being the land of Judah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So why then, since the 70 years are up and then some, is Mordecai not back in Israel? What is he still doing here? He's of royal lineage. You'd think he would have been one of the first people to jump in a caravan and head back. That was two kings ago that Cyrus the Great said, if you want to go back, head on back on my dime. That was a good king. Now under this rotten king, here he remains. Now some have suggested that the reason that he has only the one name, the Persian name, the pagan name, while Esther has the, the Persian name and her Hebrew name given to us, is because Mordecai has completely assimilated to the Persian way of life and thinking. And there may be a little something to this. He seems to see this at least initially when they come to gather all of the beautiful young virgins together to see who will be queen as an unfortunate but maybe not unacceptable deal. In fact, it seems there's hints that he might even see some opportunity in it as he gives her some wise advice, some sage advice. The advice he gives her is not run, hide. If you do this, if you go along with this, you will dishonor yourself and your God. It's not be faithful no matter what. No matter what the consequences, is, keep the covenant of our fathers. It's don't tell anyone who you are. Don't tell them what people you come from. Don't tell them which God you serve. Keep it all close to the tunic. Maybe that's why he's just Mordecai. Named after a pagan god, well, she is both Esther and Kadassa, a Hebrew name pointing forward to the Messiah, in a sense. But I think it seems more likely that we just have the two names of only Esther because it highlights something about her. It highlights her dual identity and the struggle she's going to have, trying to maintain these two things. Her religious identity, her her identity as as a, a covenant child of the Most High God. And part of this system, this sick system, she's been caught up in. She's, she's caught in the middle of this pagan world now pulled from both sides. We even see this in the text here, in our passage. The first four verses of our passage and the, the last four verses of our passage are all about how they carry out this particular job, this very business-like gathering together of humans like cattle for this purpose, Right in the middle are a few verses introducing Mordecai and Esther. They are stuck in the middle, trapped in this situation that is so much bigger than them and completely out of the control. They they feel like they are walled in, undoubtedly. And here, as these two worlds then collide, let me dispel you of a couple of false notions you may have of the book of Esther. First of all, this is not a Cinderella story where a peasant girl, through spunk and grit and beauty, falls in love with Prince Charming, and becomes queen, and then lives happily ever after. She's not a peasant girl at all. This isn't Egypt, where they were dragged away into slavery because they were were getting out of hand. This this isn't a place where they're under the boot of the ruler of the, the land. This is Persia, a pluralistic society where the Jews flourished. In fact, it seems that that's why many of them didn't go back. They were doing well, and they saw no need Now, this is a story of a time and place in which powerful men, and particularly a very wicked king, could treat human beings as objects and commodities, and literally no one could do anything about it with any effectiveness other than perhaps to speak out and effectively seal their own fate. And this seems like the the last place we would ever find God's plan unfolding. There's walls all over. I don't see any doors on any of them. Secondly, Mordecai does not, quote, enter her into a beauty contest. That is a very common misconception as people recount the book of Esther. The idea of entering her into it for some plan that he has hatched is foreign to the text. The idea of them saving the nation is nowhere on either of their radars. There's nothing to save the nation from at this point. And even the notion of God's providence in this is nowhere found until the stars start to align. And that is a pun because Esther's name means star. I think it's good to remind ourselves that these people don't know anything about where this story is headed at this point. Okay, they're, not, they're, they're just trying to survive day to day, not do some huge grand thing that will be remembered for thousands of years. And it's likely that fear plays a bigger role than faith in the lives of Mordecai and Esther here in Esther chapter 2. Thirdly, there are some who then recognize that this isn't a Cinderella story and they try to paint it as as overly bleak as kind of this this picture of people being beaten and tortured and, and all of this. I've seen this here and there. Obviously, Esther is not in control of her own life and destiny here. Obviously, it's a bad thing that has happened. But so that we have an accurate picture, this is not a violent thing on the surface, not initially. Anyone Brutalizing a member of the king's harem would be as good as dead themselves. And so they're going to treat these women, at first, very kindly. Here, being taken means being pampered for a year, eating the best food, living in luxury, basically a spa setting, but knowing the whole time in the back of your mind that this was not without major strings attached. So there would be, for some of them, excitement. Uh, Here comes my shot at possibly being queen. And then for some of them, there would simply be dread perhaps for most of them. However, there, it's not all bad people involved in this. Mordecai seems to be a fairly good guy serving in an official role, and we meet another guy here, one of the eunuchs, one of the, the head eunuchs in charge of the women, particularly the virgins. His name is Hegai. It looks like Hegai. He, H, short E. That's not how you pronounce it. People say it that way to distinguish it from Haggai the prophet. But I think it's important that you know it's a seray. That's the vowel there. It's hey, guy. It's important not because it helps you understand the text, but because it helps you recognize that there's a character in this book named Hey Man and another character named Hey Guy. So that's something. Now, Hey Man is going to turn out to be kind of counterintuitively a really bad, horrible man. But Hey Guy is just as friendly as he sounds. And there is a, a little just silver lining of grace in this story of uncertainty and fear and, and, and objectification and, and victimization here. We read about this guy coming into her life in uh, verses 9 and 10. The young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred for Mordecai had commanded her not to make them known." Now, how she found this favor with the eunuch, we don't know. Certainly, it could have been. She was just the most beautiful one by far, and he thought that makes the most sense for me to put her front and center, put most of my eggs in that basket, and then I will have done my job well. Or perhaps they just kind of became friends like people do. You have to imagine that would happen in a setting like this, where everyone is living uh, together. Perhaps he was impressed with her character. We don't know, but what we do know is that however it happened, this is ultimately God at work, working things for good in a very bad situation. And then finally, the last verse of our passage. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. The fear and uncertainty of Esther going into this unknown situation I have to imagine was almost matched by Mordecai's sense of helplessness and frustration and probably anger and regret, unable as he was to get more than a little second-hand update here and there about the well-being of his own adopted daughter. And he really, I, I just like the king must have been full of some regret at the beginning, Mordecai, as he walked back and forth before the palace, must have been filled with some sense of regret. Why did I let this happen? Why didn't we go back to Jerusalem? when that was on the table why stay here in the dragon's lair sure i'm an official i'm doing all right but is it worth it and then fourth i want to point out that there these these heroes quote unquote of the bible are not heroes yet there's no indicator that mordecai put up any kind of fight when they showed up i don't i don't have a daughter but i'll tell you what if i did when someone showed up at my door and said oh we're taking your daughter for this thing where she goes and and sleeps with the king There would be blood. He seems to simply go along with it. I don't know that we can blame him. What could he have done but caused all the deaths? But there's also no hint that Esther refuses to eat the king's meat, like Daniel and his friends, when they were brought into the palace. And they said, listen, we are Jews. We follow the God of Israel, the God of heaven and earth, and we can't eat this stuff. And they they stand up and declare themselves. The very opposite happens here. Her lips are sealed and she tells no one who she is. She eats what's put before her and does what's expected of her. These people are dealing with the fallout from sins and decisions, bad decisions of other people. And their own decisions. Their decision to stay in Persia, to go along with the edict, to hide Esther's identity. And yet, God does not leave them behind. He doesn't say, well, I gave you every opportunity. You know, I I opened it up so that you could go back out of this pagan land and go to Israel. You didn't do it. You made your bed. Now you can sleep in it. And oftentimes, I think we find ourselves, whether by our own decisions and shortcomings, those of other people perhaps, maybe more likely a combination of the two, we find ourselves in the middle of all of this, like Esther and Mordecai going, how did I get in this mess I feel like I'm kind of to blame, but not all the way. And yet we know that God is there in the midst of our trials and our struggles, just as he was with Esther and Mordecai. If you ever feel like you lack courage and you look back into your past and go, wow, I've really dropped the ball. I've lacked courage again and again, or I've compromised with the world. And my lack of courage and my compromise has disqualified me from being used of God. Look no further than this book of Esther To discover that God is not through with you because of that. Yes, you have compromised, but that does not mean that you are compromised. Let's look through the genealogy of Christ. We were talking about this in Sunday school a little bit. There are four women in the genealogy of Christ, which is unusual. Usually they would only highlight the men unless the women were particularly noble and important. These women are not. Noble and big shots by man's estimation No, we've got Gentiles we've got prostitutes We've got peasants and two of them Tamar and Rahab actually have been prostitutes Rahab a a Gentile prostitute Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and in Pretending actually becomes one at least for one evening in order to fool her father-in-law But I'll tell you what you don't have to even say well, let's look at the women look at anyone in that genealogy Look at Abraham himself. What's worse? (laughs) Saying to your adopted daughter, they're coming for you to bring you to the king's harem. Don't tell them that you are an Israelite. Or saying to your own wife, look, tell that king that you're just my sister so that he will bring you into his harem and things will go well for me here. And then, after you make that mistake and repent of it, Doing the same thing again. What? Yeah, I think that perhaps when people are talking about all of the kind of black marks that you would find on the genealogy of Jesus, we should start with some of the men, including all of them that we lift up. All are sinners. There is no pure spot in that genealogy until you get to Christ himself. God's people are not perfect. His plan is perfect. He sent one perfect person, and that was Jesus Christ. You do not need to fill that role. And when you fail to fill it, you are not disqualified and left behind to sleep in your bed because you made it. So application. If we want to call ourselves followers of Jesus, if we want to accept that when we make our bed, God doesn't abandon us to sleep in it, to reap what we sow each and every time, then we must not write off others in the same way and say, well, you did this, therefore you're stuck with it. Oh, well, I don't even feel too bad for you. This past week, there was an awful news story out of Kalamazoo. I don't know if you saw this. There was a, a family that had a guy staying on a couch. He was wanted for murder, and the police came and tried to arrest him. There was a standoff, and he kept shooting, and they kept knocking holes in the wall and knocking walls down to try and see him and get to him. And by the time the guy turned the gun on himself, tragically, the house was in such bad repair, disrepair, they decided the only thing to do was just to collapse it on itself. And talk about not learning your lesson like Abraham. I looked at some of the comments online, and again and again people said, I don't even feel sorry that this family of seven lost their house. They should have known what kind of guy they had sleeping on the couch and what it could lead to. They're the ones who let him in the door. They should have to live with it. And I'm thinking, first of all, how do you not have some compassion? I let someone sleep on my couch and now I'm homeless and my children are How is there not compassion overriding that? Like with Jesus when he looked upon the people who were like sheep with no shepherd. But even more than that, what about all the little kids whose every single toy and even their pets were crushed when they, they took this house down? How do we not have compassion? Because we can wall it off and say, ah, but in this situation you brought it on yourself. I've heard of this also when someone stays behind and there's a hurricane and they don't evacuate and people say, "Well, you know what? It's kind of sad, but what are you going to get? That's what you asked for." And I, and I see this kind of online echo chamber where you're just surrounded like a with people who think exactly like you as fomenting that kind of lack of concern and empathy. That's another application I would draw from this text. Surround yourself with good counselors and a variety of counselors, not just your young men, not just your friends who will say what you want to hear, but people who love you and will tell you what you need to hear. We need to get away from the echo chamber that just says, ah, uh, the algorithm feeds me back what I already believe. We need to get away from the silly labels of, okay, boomer, you don't have anything to say to me because you've lived more life than me and know more than me and are wise. You need to get away from unhelpful discrediting of people based on age or race or gender or politics. All this stuff reinforces and amplifies the Ahasuerus effect where you find yourself making stupid decisions because people will just feedback loop your own ideas to you. You need people who will speak hard truths into your life and speak those truths in love and people into whom you will speak truth as well. In James 1, we read, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If only there had been some slow your roll when Ahasuerus started to get so angry at his wife. All of that could have been avoided. Now, God used it for good, but certainly he was culpable for sin there. There was another rash decision made in haste. We see another one found in in Judges. In Judges chapter 11, you remember, Jephthah, one of the judges who delivered Israel, he's fighting and he says, Lord, if we win this battle, the first thing walking out the door I will offer up to you as a burnt offering. He gets home, he's walking up, who comes out but his daughter, his only child, playing the tambourine, singing so happy that he's there. And just like Ahasuerus said, I can't undo it. I'm trapped in it. He says to himself, I'm trapped in my vow. Now I've preached through this whole thing for half an hour. There's a lot to unpack with it, but just recognize that rash words being quick to speak and quick to anger and quick to make a a rash move or a rash vow is going to lead us down a bad road. And I think we see a very Ahasuerus-like response here. In, in Judges eleven thirty five, 35, what does he say when he's walking up his front walk and out comes his daughter with tambourines and dances? His only child, besides her, he had neither daughter nor son. As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, My daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. Pronouns again. He remembered Vashti, what she had done. He walks up and he looks at her and he says, Ah, oh, what you have done to me. Neither of them says, what have I done? And repents and and truly mourns their own sin. Good counselors will help you to do that. In this moment, of course, we see another connection to everyday life, where at the beginning of the chapter, fury had subsided. He's no longer angry, but the damage is already done. He's now walled in by his words and his proclamations. Same thing can happen today. We don't have the law of the Medes and the Persians holding us back, but we may as well sometimes. Because once I've said those words in haste and anger, and once we've built those walls between us, and once we've declared, I'm in the right and you're in the wrong, and I banish you, the only alternative to following through is to admit that I was rash and childish and maybe petty and repent of my little inner Ahasuerus And ask for forgiveness and seek reconciliation. And who's going to do that? It's easy to say, well, I'm open to reconciliation with people that that I've got a beef with. But you know what? They've got to come to me. I I think that I've been more wrong than they have. So when they apologize, then we'll be okay. You come to me, I demand it, is the most Ahasuerus move so far, is it not? It's how he got into this spot to begin with. You better come and appear before me, or that's that. The best thing, of course, is to avoid building the walls to begin with, as far as you're able to live at peace with everybody, but we all fall, we all stumble, we all fall short of the glory of God. And when we've done it, when we've built up the walls, and when we feel penned in by the walls, and we say, I can't knock down these walls, I don't have the strength, I'm just, I, I feel trapped, perhaps that is when we ought to ask God to show us the hidden door in the wall. God is there, even in those moments in the midst of our sin and pettiness. I hate it when people say, they're telling a story and they go, then God showed up. What? God didn't show up. God was always there. God is omnipresent and God will never leave you nor forsake you. Then you saw and recognized and and, and acknowledged that God was there. There's a sense of waiting for God in that way in this book. And yet it turns out in the end that he had never left them. His seeming silence here does not amount to his absence. Yeah, there's no priest, there's no sacrifice, there's no temple mentioned, there's no divine titles used, but God is at work in the everyday, messy, complicated lives and identities of these people. When the walls were closing in, The walls that were built by their own sins and shortcomings, walls built by circumstance and and seemingly by chance, walls built by the decisions of their ancestors or people in power, people on the other side of the world can make decisions that make us feel hemmed in. Our God opens hidden doors. Remember that. Don't wait for God to show up. Ask him to open your eyes to see that he's already there. Ask him to show you the hidden door that will, that will he- allow you to escape temptation or endure a trial or difficulty. Don't lose sight. Don't lose hope. Our God, the God of providence, is always with us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the story of Esther. We thank you for flawed heroes who, Lord, we can look at and we can dissect from our our ivory towers all these millennia later, but Lord, we are thankful that when it came down to it, there are broken and flawed people who are willing to put it all on the line when it matters for the name of Jesus, for the name of their God, Yahweh, for the covenant of redemption, the covenant that, Lord, we pray that you would never allow us to abandon. That that even when we sometimes turn away and forget that we would be reminded that you are in our midst, that whatever walls may seem to hem us in, you are more mighty than them, that you are a God who will always be with us, always love us, not a fair-weather God, but a God who is love, a God who is always merciful, a God who will never leave us. Amen.